Welcome to Where Next, Conversations with Matt Project Office, a design studio that crafts physical products for the digital age, bridging the gap between people and technology, the material world and the virtual. Where Next is a new podcast series tackling the role design can play in shaping our everyday lives. Each episode, we invite an expert panel to pull apart a pressing social issue and discuss where design may be able to make a difference. Hello and welcome to Where Next, Conversations with MAP Project Office. My name is Ollie Stratford. I'm the editor-in-chief of Desenio, but more importantly, I'm going to be your host today for this conversation. Ambient tech, should we make friends with tech? Now, what prompted this idea was the realisation that we're increasingly relaxed around the idea that we have the internet in our homes and the functionality of those homes has changed a lot as a result. We're more and more used to having smart devices and interacting with our homes in different ways to which we have in the past. And I think even our ideas of what is classed as domestic have perhaps changed over time. The introduction of technology has altered the way in which people live and the way we're relating to these domestic spaces. But what specifically interested us was a lot of the ideas of ambient tech that we've seen a lot of the devices with which people are very familiar can be quite austere. So it's often the black screen of a smart television or a fairly mute smart speaker. And we became interested in how people relate to those technologies. Do they feel comfortable around them? Do they find them intrusive? With a lot of tech, there are concerns over privacy, concerns over data. So what could actually be done in the physical shaping of those devices or their interfaces that might make people feel more comfortable and relaxed with them? So that's the area we're going to be exploring today with the panel. And as part of that, we're going to be zeroing in on the role that more playful forms of design could adopt in this area. So if we start to introduce more friendly forms, brighter colours, perhaps even some anthropomorphism into these devices, does that change the way in which we as users interact with them? Does that make people feel more relaxed? Or does it create problems? Does it disguise some of the complexity of these objects and perhaps act as a false friend? We have a great panel today who are going to be talking about these issues, and I'll hand over to them to introduce themselves. First up, we have Sumi Park, a London-based designer and a lecturer in the Department of Design at Goldsmiths University of London. Hi, Sumi. Hello, hi, uh, this is Sumi, and uh, as Oli introduced, I live in London and I am a designer who use um, mainly speculative design or design fiction as a medium to explore technology and surrounding issues or interesting topics, I would say, and slash I am also a lecturer in design department of Cosmos University of London. Thanks, Sumi. Next on the panel, we have Laura LeBeau, an industrial designer at MAP Project Office. Hi, Laura. Hi, everyone. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm Laura. I'm a designer at MAP and I work across uh, tech products and I also quite like to get my head into speculative design projects. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We then have Zoe Schlado, design strategist at Google. Hi, Zoe. Hi. Yes, I am Zoe. I'm a design strategist at Google. I work in Seed Studio, which is an advanced concept team in Google hardware. And I've typically held positions in early stage design, but my background is in arts and architecture. Rounding out our panel is Baz van der Poel, co-founder and director at Modem Works. Hi, Baz. Hey, hello. Um, my name is Baz van der Poel. I'm co-founder at Modem. Uh, we call ourselves an office for design and innovation. Um, and we're very much focused on anticipating and responding to um, a various of advanced technologies um, and, and looking very much at that intersection from like a humane perspective. In order to do that, we're set up as a hybrid between a think tank and a design studio. So within our think tank, we, we initiate uh, different research papers with the institutes like Harvard, uh, UC Berkeley or MIT. And then basically take these insights and apply them uh, for clients uh, within our design studio. Well, to get us going, I'm going to pose an open question to the group. Although, Zoe, I might ask you to start because I think this falls within your wheelhouse a little bit. And 
This is a question around how comfortable you think we are with the idea of these connected technologies in our home. Because I suppose traditionally, home has often been seen as a private space, right? Not exhaustively. Of course, there are counterexamples to this. But a lot of the popular imagination around the home is that it's a place of respite where you can be away from the world. You have a bit more seclusion. Um, but more and more, we have seen the introduction of these connected technologies, which really serve to link the home up to the rest of the world, to bring information in and so on. How do you think that people feel about that kind of move? Yeah. So I think, you know, I think the second part of your question is so interesting that the home itself has changed so much. Do you know, like it's always been a different place for different people. Like, you know, what is a home? It can be big, small, urban, rural, you know, it can be a dorm room. Um, and I think increasingly, particularly in the last few years, we've seen it turn into an office space, a space for caregiving, you know, a space for things that it's traditionally been, but also new things. And I think with all that change, we've also become even more used to having devices in these spaces. Um, you know, I love technology because I think it kind of amplifies our abilities or helps us. And the home is where I often need a lot of help. So for me, it, it makes like a lot of sense to have a strong relationship with technology there. And I think it's a really interesting space to design for. Sumi, I'm going to ask if you could weigh in as well. How do you see the role of technology in the home? Is it something you feel comfortable with or uncomfortable with? It is yes and no, I think. Uh, certain technologies I really I can't um, leave without. But certain things I feel a bit like, is it really like even certain functions embedded because of uh, development technology? For example, we have a dishwasher recently we bought. We had to buy a new one because the old one was broken and has some Wi-Fi function in it. And I wasn't sure what, what's the point. But yes, I agree with Zoe. Um, yes, home is interesting space to explore. Um, potentials of uh, technologies and because after COVID probably meaning of home become much more um, bigger space than you just needed for sleeping and having private life. It, it become more than that, I think. Now, this is an interesting one. And I think you're right to draw distinctions between different types of technology, because I think lots of people are very okay with the idea of smart speakers, for example. You can see the advantage of that being connected to the internet. You can stream the music you want when you want. It, it, it's a clear advantage. I must admit, I find connected washing machines quite baffling as well. Um, I don't really understand why they need to be connected to the internet. Uh, I don't know if anyone on the panel would like to mount a defense of connected washing machines. Um, if, if anyone does see a strong reason for that. I, I, okay, that's a little bit flippant, but I think it does sum up one tendency within this field, right? Um, and that's something which people have noticed and maybe react against, which is the rise of every type of appliance suddenly becoming connected. You know, suddenly the internet is just slapped onto these typologies we've had for years. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think there's been such an increase in the number of connected devices including some which maybe seem slightly pointless on the surface of things. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, maybe to circle back a little bit, I think um, maybe sort of like to start with the definition of the modern home, which I think, you know, like Le Corbusier around 1930 mentioned that, that um, a, a home is a machine uh, to live in. And I feel sort of like, you know, in, in today's reality, uh, slowly but surely the home is becoming almost like an operating system to live in. Um, and I feel that that actually the the framing of of the term smart home is is not correct. I think automated home is perhaps more appropriate because it's actually not that smart. You know, you still need like a thousand different apps. You know, like you have an app for your dishwasher, you have an app for your thermostat, you have an app for your a robot vacuum cleaner, and basically, sort of like all these different interfaces are, you know, putting increased burden on people instead of sort of like freeing their lives. So I think the whole definition of, of smart home uh, is incorrect. Uh, and I, I, I feel that automated is more appropriate. And, and, and perhaps at some point, you know, I think also with the rise of AI and machine learning, 
we might reach a more intelligent home, but at this point, we're not there. How do you think, um, what needed to be happened in order to reach the point of uh, having a smart home? Because I think a smart is quite a nice word uh, to frame that. It's not intelligent enough. It's kind of smart. It's kind of knowing things without me sort of directing, like pushing the button directly, like, okay, you have to start. And the smart means like, okay, it does have a, some functionality. If I give some sort of direction, they would operate in sort of pro programmed or pre-programmed uh, way of approach. So, um, but, so that's why we're thinking, I'm thinking the vocabulary of a smart is quite right. But smart device is working, but smart home doesn't really. So uh, I'm asking a question back. So what do you think? It should happen in order to reach a smart home. Again, I think it's also like a very you know, strategic positioning, perhaps from from tech-based companies to to sort of like call the smart home as if sort of like you know like uh, homes without connected devices are dumb. Um, so I think that's also like a, a strategic positioning, perhaps. Um, I think in terms of of, of reaching an intelligent home, um, smart devices and and the, and the connected home. Um, need to start uh, speaking our language. So traditionally, you know, like in order to operate a home, we're sort of like have to deal with very complicated UX and UI interfaces. And um, in order to, you know, program a thermostat, uh, we, we sort of like need to go like 30 different menus and, and sort of like, you know, scheduling quite complex matters. Uh, and, and that's for one device. So these different devices are not talking uh, to each other because, you know, at this point, there hasn't really been like unified standard uh, for quote unquote, the smart home. So I think, again, I think that the rise of, of AI and machine learning and perhaps more specifically large language models, um, I think that will create the potential for, for the home to finally uh, speak our language and understand our human language. So, um, in order to to program things, we can just talk to our home, um, and and it's sort of like uh, perhaps a, a next step in that is that it's sort of like anticipate a response, you know, to our needs and mood and and context of that particular day. Laura, can I ask you to jump in here because this is something which Map has worked with a lot. Uh, you've developed, designed a lot of these devices, and worked with technology, um, but I think Map has had a good track record in that area. You've embraced the possibilities afforded by technology, but also presented it in such a way that it isn't alienating to users and such that it's quite welcoming to human interaction. Um, how, how do you go about designing these devices and trying to make them work in the way we've been discussing? Yeah, um, that's a really good question, because I think bouncing off what Baz said uh, about devices being called smart but actually not really being so smart individually just being actually quite clunky to use still to this day i think there's a there's a real like potential for these to um by almost like you know simplifying them to their primary use um there's a real opportunity to clarify the way we have to use them so uh, when we worked on little signals the project we did with um sid studio we had this sort of idea of like thinking back of very simple interactions that occur in the home. So one of the first things we thought about was, you know, when you glance at a clock to look at the time, that's, you know, the, the time, telling you the time is the only purpose this object has. And it does it really well and very clearly. And I think we tried to sort of translate the simplicity in a range of objects that would convey information that at the moment, only our phones are able to convey efficiently. So, for for example, you'd glance at an object um, to know whether you have a busy day or not, and it would tell you that without you having to go through all these, um, as I said, all these clunky menus and spending an hour uh, having to like set it up and like define all the parameters. It would be really easy to understand for users. Yeah, I agree with Laura. I mean, in that project, you know, part of the hypothesis with little signals was that so many of our devices have become complex. And so you have to, if the more object can do, the bigger the hierarchy has to be. And some tasks have to be a bit more varied. 
And so it was interesting to just prioritize a few things and say, it only does that unless they're always easily accessible. I obviously think that's really interesting (laughs) and I'm a a fan of that idea, but I also think that complements our other devices. You know, there's a time and a place for everything. So in my home, there may be times that I want that more simplified and mindful interaction, want to have a bit more focus, but I also use my phone at home. You know, I think it's about having that choice and balance. Baz, I wonder if we could go back to something which you were touching on, which is that the smart home isn't necessarily that smart. Then you mentioned potentially with the growing sophistication of AI, it could almost begin to take on a slightly predictive element of anticipating someone's needs in their home. Uh, So there's this idea that the smart home, quote unquote, could become smarter. And I was curious about the language there, because the moment when you mentioned AI, I had that very instinctive reaction, which I think a lot of people have of, oh, I don't know if I like the idea of AI being present in the home. There's there's that slightly off-putting aspect to it. I, 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 I think a lot of tech can be quite alienating, and people are quite worried about admitting that kind of sophistication into their private space. How do you feel about that? Do do you understand those concerns around the admission of that kind of technology into the home space? Very much so, because I think, I mean, there have been very uh, uh, different examples actually recently that privacy has been intervened uh, through these uh, different devices. And what I'm quite excited about personally is sort of the rise of edge computing and also perhaps more specifically in the context of large language models that you can run these very advanced AI models locally uh, on a device, which basically means that you don't need to transmission any uh, of your data to the cloud. And I think that's, you know, I think there lies a real uh, strong potential because I think um, also because the home is really, you know, like perhaps like the, the ultimate place where people experience freedom and autonomy. I personally dislike the tendency to be, become dependent on like an external uh, company to, to operate the home. And, and therefore, I, I, I believe that sort of like these new advancements and, and, and to, to run things locally have, have great potential actually to, yeah, to give uh, people uh, a sense of control again. And, and maybe to, to illustrate that, I think, you know, like a, a few years back, I read a tweet uh, about a person who couldn't enter his home because uh, he, he had like installed like a smart lock and basically there was like a um, like a, a power outage somewhere in Arizona that basically uh, didn't allow the smart uh, uh, lock to connect with the Amazon surf in Arizona. So it, the person couldn't enter his home anymore. So I think, you know, again, like I think that speaks for to have some autonomy and independence uh, uh, and, and not rely too much on, on external companies in this uh, in this context. What do you think the design of these devices, both in terms of their hardware, but potentially also their software and interfaces, could do to help with that, to give people a feeling of autonomy, to give people a sense that they're in charge of the technology and it's something that's helping them? Uh, Because I, I think there can be something almost quite dystopian about, you know, having a big black screen in your space or this very new technology. Um... I think your mind starts to go a little bit towards 2001, a space odyssey and, and, and some stories like that. So what strategies do you see there as being in design to perhaps make that transition towards more sophisticated technologies easier uh, and make them more acceptable to people or, or at the very least to make them a little bit more understandable? Uh, I think it's a, it's a really interesting point. I think naturally you want to say that you can, you know, give confidence by allowing users to, for example, manually decide to hide the camera on like a smart screen, for example, or manually cover the microphone. I think on a lot of recently made um, smart devices, you have this this option, like you always have a sort of very analog switch you can push to like make it very comprehensible. So I think this is a really interesting approach. And also in general, making those devices friendlier with like softer colors, uh, make them feel less dystopian and less um, 2001, as you said. 
But for me, there's also a really interesting uh, tension between making these devices feel very trustworthy and friendly, but also the fact that we are almost hiding or concealing the fact that they're still, you know, most of the time recording everything that they hear or just sort of, you know, just waiting for a cue to then activate. Or they're also, you know, very often exchanging with data centers that are really far away and they require a lot of power and effort to run. And I feel like covering these devices with very friendly design features increases the chance of like disconnecting them from what they actually do, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, but it depends. I think it depends what user wants, basically. Uh, if they want more uh, sort of feel-friendly towers to devices, um, I did some research and I just I just handed in my PhD uh, in this year. I'm waiting for Viva, but my PhDs are all about social robotics and how they can be accepted, uh, more accepted than, than now. Um, and one of my studies, uh, I was like um, discussing with people like what they think robots should be. Um, they, I think people don't like the concept of human likeness that much because of, obviously there is a fear of, um, you know, robot would take all, all uh, over and they're smart and intelligent and stuff like that. So people don't like um, anything like robot looks like human much, but they also didn't like uh, the robot looks like a square or the spear because they think it's not a that they, they think it's the object is pretend to be human like or um, mm. it doesn't really associate with them kind of aliveness at all. So in design approach. It needed, of course, a balance, but also I found that people want to have like one or two human features. Like, so there is a something, it's not just square, black square. It has a, some kind of eye-like feature or nose-like feature or blink-like feature. They pe People feel like, oh, that's friendly enough or it's sort of acceptable. It's, li it's alive a little bit, but not scary alive. So I think. Something as a designer, we need to kind of consider um, people wouldn't really want to look something like overly cute or try to be pretend human-like, like, but it needed something. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think it's a, it's as you say, it's like a balance of empowering your users, uh, but also not make them feel like you're trying to cheat them or like deceive them somehow. Zoe, how, how is this factored into your work at Google? What's your thinking around how you make manifest these designs and make them feel accessible and welcome, but, you know, not give that feeling that you're disguising the technology within? Technology or devices, they should be secure. They should be private. Um, and they are or they aren't, you know? So it's sort of like I like design to be honest. You know, I'm not going to use it to make something seem a way it isn't you're going to use it to accentuate what it is so you know to me it's like they're almost two separate issues that the object needs to be private it needs to take into these considerations and then i'm going to make sure that users understand that and that people you know feel good about that um but i do think it's interesting this idea of you know is something playful or is that you know how we inject sort of character into objects and devices because I think something can be full of character without having a personality. And I think it's so interesting how people project personalities on objects and devices too. Like, you know, I don't think Roombas or uh, cars were necessarily designed to be big personalities, but people still name them, right? So I I think it's sort of an interplay too on what we might design, but also what people see in something. I think that's actually such a good point. I think, I mean, I think there's actually like a lot of uh, potential for, you know, sort of like designing uh, an, an aesthetic beyond sort of like uh, cute and playful. And I think especially sort of like within the context of devices within the home, I'm just wondering like, you know, what if a smart speaker would be designed by Noguchi? 
or what is like a thermostat designed by like a Zara Hadid? Or can we take inspirations uh, from from movements like Wabi Sabi uh, or or Kintsuki? Like sort of like that we sort of like embrace imperfections a bit more. And and in that sense, you know, has the potential to really become a heirloom piece rather than something that might be out of fashion. Also from like a stability point of view, uh, in, in three years from now. Yeah, I feel that's something that I could add to this, which is I think. It also ties with the idea that you'd keep a smart object for a long time and that it would become a heirloom, something to be attached to, I think is at the moment something that doesn't really happen much because um, tech, tech objects for the home are very quickly sort of being replaced by newer ones. And I think they're still in a state of being quite easily disposed of, replaced. So we don't really get attached to them in a way that we'd get attached to like uh, you know, really nice home speakers that maybe your dad gave you or uh, this kind of objects. And that there's a real potential for these objects to last longer and therefore also be more worthy of our trust and our love in the future. And it's, it's I think it's a really hard um, design problem in a sense, because we have to think about software, about updates, about maintenance. We have to think of all these things uh, on the long term. Is there an issue around the fact that often when you get a smart device, um, let's use the example of a smart doorbell, it, it looks very much like it's a dumb equivalent, you know, the old typology, except maybe there's a visible camera on it or, or a sort of visible screen or, or something that says tech. Um, Baz, I was, I was interested in what you were saying about possibly being a little bit bolder in the design of some of these things pushing them in a slightly different direction. Is there potentially an issue around the idea that these new smart products, at least initially, often follow a previous archetype? Because there can be something slightly uncanny about that. Would it be better if the new devices we have look less like the previous archetypes that they're building upon? I don't know. I mean, I think there are also archetypes for a reason. There's a reason why, you know, like a, a table uh, is a certain height and, and why, you know, like uh, chairs might have certain dimensions. Uh, it's quite interesting. I think, you know, if you look at one of the most advanced consumer facing technologies at this moment, you know, which arguably is OpenAI's GTP4, that's basically a text-based inter uh, interface. You know, very reminiscent of you know, like the early uh, uh, interfaces we had, like in the in the seventies. So perhaps you know, like people don't really mind that too much. To be honest, I think ultimately it's about like the the experience a uh, device pr provides, and then the aesthetic uh, comes later. What do you think about the role of speculative design in this region? Um, Sumi, you've obviously worked in that field. I think a couple of the other panellists have said they're interested in that kind of work, how to use speculations about design and technology and how those can help us relate to the technology that we have at present. What do you see the value to the field as being of engaging in that kind of design? I think um, I use speculative design because it's sort of... Um doesn't really start with sort of big answer to a problem. It's much more kind of seeking for a problem, which hasn't been really um, pointed out yet from the field, either like design field or uh, technology industry um, or research field. So um, I think based on kind of scenario and illustrative kind of far future scenario, so it could go kind of far, far away. Um, reflecting my, my recent research is, is that I think technology, we have to sort of admit it that, uh, technology is, uh, imperfect and maybe they need to signal that it's not just about, um, okay, when, when we just see technology failing a bit and then therefore we, uh, treat them as a different kind of, species is that species even uh but okay because of technology it's it is technology we have to just dump it we got we get a new one uh instead of that if technology said i'm so sorry uh or if it says okay um this is unexpected i'm very sorry 
So to apology, apologetic, I think could be much more uh, acceptable. I don't know. And that's how I start to speculate about social robotics should be blushing or they have to uh, express a feeling of embarrassment, for example, in order to get closer, in order to be much more acceptable. And in that regard, um, speculation, speculative design itself was giving me a bit of freedom to think about why we're really talking about only like development itself, why we're not looking how we like, how we do it between us. Laura, would you like to add to that? Because you mentioned being interested in those speculations within design as well. And something of real interest to map is the way in which design doesn't just necessarily make existing behaviours within the home and with technology easier, less frictionless and so on, um, but can also trigger new behaviours, can trigger new relationships to technology uh, and, and to the spaces we're in. Um, how do you go about conceiving of that? How, how do you go about starting to think about what new kinds of behaviours and relationships technology and design can enable? I think when we when we have the opportunity as a studio to sit down and think of of a project in a more well, in a more speculative way, and it's not focusing on bringing a product to market, it's about maybe having more freedom to explore like a long term possibility. Um, I think it's it's really interesting because I think design objects, especially tech products, have like a really strong potential of changing behaviors, and I think they can do it much quicker. And in a more, in a much more radical way than we could imagine sometimes. I think OpenAI, like right now, is a great example of this. And it's really impossible to tell right now because we don't have, um, it hasn't been around for enough time for us to look back and think, wow, it's incredible everything that has changed in a couple of years. But I think if we look back a few years and, for example, when, when the very first iPhone came out, I, I, I think it's, it's amazing to see in, in about, 15 20 years how much it changed human behavior at such a large scale and that was done by a tech product alone and of course all the ecosystem behind it so i think there's a, a real not saying that every object needs to have this sort of impact but um, i think as designers we really have this responsibility to think of what could be the consequences of whatever object we're bringing to the world beforehand because i feel like Often we just focus on bringing to market the, the new tech, but we maybe should spend some time uh, interrogating ethics and, you know, anthropology and like every other sort of discipline that would allow us to think a bit more holistically of like a product, for example. Zoe, what role is research playing in your work? How's that shaping the designs that you're coming up with at Google? It depends. I mean, we use research at every stage of design. So in many ways, a lot of our work is inspired by foundational research, whether things, things we'll do internally or things we'll read externally. And much like Cindy and Laura, you know, we do a lot of speculative design work that's looking at not just, you know, how to impact an object or a feature or a service, but really how to kind of build out a world and what the societal implications might be and really the implications of those objects as opposed to just their application. So we do a lot of research to try and inform what that vision might be or, you know, the ramifications, positive or negative of the design. And then we do a lot of research to evaluate our ideas to get them in front of people, but also just to hear how they react, what things they're looking for, you know, what makes them excited. Research to me is this was a very collaborative part of design and design's inherently collaborative. So it's, it's always great to hear what you know, others think or, or what they're reacting to in that moment. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorite parts of my job. How easy is it to think through the implications of new technologies and to predict what their impact is going to be? Baz, you mentioned ChatGTP, which is fascinating. There's a lot of excitement around it. At the same time, uh, a lot of people have a tremendous amount of anxiety about it, particularly within the design world. Um, a lot of discussion about what it means for the role of the designer going forward and how AI generative models might change that. So when you're working with these kinds of more transformative technologies, 
how much of a handle can you have thinking through what their implications might be or how they change the way in which we live and work? I think it's it's always easier to envision sort of like the jobs that will be automated versus sort of like the new jobs that will arise. And I think that that has been proven over and over. So I think, you know, like that, that will likely be the case as well with, with these new and emerging advanced AI models. I think it's like the, the difficult part is predicting the ripple effects, you know? So I think it's easy to sort of like predict that, you know, when, when sort of like cars were introduced, you know, that there will be like gas stations or highways. But I think it were, was more difficult to predict that, you know, there w- would be sort of like malls, you know, um, um, like are built or, or uh, um, around these these highways. So I think that's the case with, with many different technologies and, and, and same with sort of like the introduction of, of the smartphone. You know, like, yes, we uh, could have predicted certain aspects, but perhaps like an Uber or like a Tinder uh, or Tinder babies <laughs> for, for that matter, or perhaps uh, more difficult to to predict. So I think it's uh, it's actually a very challenging job, and and probably uh, unadvisable to to try to predict the future because um, it's uh, yeah you can go pretty wrong. And we're never going to know a hundred percent how something's going to react, you know, or or change the world. You give something to someone, and they'll always use it in unexpected ways. But I do think. You know, as designers, technologists, engineers, you have a sense of of what might happen. There's a reason there's so many like good science fiction films too, right? And people always refer to Minority Report because there's just so many interesting provocations in that film still. And so I do think there's a way to project some of what might happen, uh, get ahead of it or use it in interesting ways. But uh, it's also, you know, nothing happens super quickly. Like something will go out there in the world, things will change a little bit, then we'll change our understanding of what might happen next. It's sort of a cycle. Even what Laura was talking about with a piece of technology that might change the world, it's still going to take a decade to do that. And I think it's only upon that time that we can really reflect and say, wow, this is really what's happened. I'm curious as to whether there are any new technologies on the market today that you find personally interesting where you think, Okay, th- this is a, this is an interesting new functionality. It's it's doing something different, and it, it's been designed in a way in which you find successful, which you think engages with that technology uh, in an intriguing way. <laughs> I don't know who would like to go first because that's been rather sprung on you. Um, but Baz, I mean, you mentioned ChatGPT is an interesting model. Don't know whether that's one for you. Does anyone else has any have any particular feelings on that, or, or whether there are any other examples of technology that you consider worthy of reflection? I think there are many. I mean, to be honest, I don't think we have truly seen ambient technology yet, because I think you know until this point, like technology hasn't been advanced enough. But I think you know, like with the introduction of computer vision, that is basically ba- uh, better at sort of like recognizing images uh, than us humans. And with the introduction of like a again like an open AI model like Whisper, which is better at picking up on on natural language than humans, I think we will see a lot of new and emerging uh, devices that sort of like truly live up to the spirit of ambient technology, and that really can be sort of like interwoven into the fabric of everyday life. I think it's also like, especially within the context of the of the home. I mean, since the mid twentieth uh, century, sort of like the the television has been such a dominant force in 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 the home, and it's a sp- screen based device. And ever since, you know, like talking about archetypes again, I think that has been sort of like the archetype of a device within the home. And and through that, you know, like <laughs> sort of like uh, we we have seen a dramatic increase in, in the amount of screens in homes, from tablets to smartphones to sort of like. Uh, gaming consoles. Um, but I feel that, you know, right now we're actually at a tipping point um, where technology can become more integrated into the architecture of the home, uh, you know, that can feel more sensorial, intuitive and, and responding, um, you know, to, to all different senses uh, rather than only or solely focusing on touch and sight. Um, so I think, 
it's actually a quite interesting time you know to be designing for for the the new paradigm of, of home computing Laura perhaps that's something there that you might be able to pick up on because Matt for instance you, you put out a white paper specifically looking at screens and the dominance of the screen and I'd be interested to hear your reflections on what was said about the different ways of interacting with technology and what those might be and what potential you see in that? Yeah, I think I think um, to talk a bit more about the screens, I think it's a, it's really interesting to observe since the sort of emergence of connected smart home products, like how many of them are actually just pretty much the, re- the, the same products as they were before, but just with a screen on them and like a little interface that will probably feel a bit clunky and impractical after a couple of years of use and I think maybe like an ideal to achieve um, for us as designers would be to get to a point where this technology is smart enough and like almost independent enough like capable of learning enough that all those objects can be require way less of our input to function and they don't need like this physical interface to be sort of interacted with um, anymore and in a sense they would maybe blend into our homes in a much more seamless way and I think that's an ideal for ambient technology is to become invisible in, in the sense that it wouldn't have to just manifest itself through these little portals attached to each object they could all sort of maybe be accessible in one place like they could be on a phone or one smart device and then sort of be sent like individually to devices without us having to go and touch all of them. We've mentioned this idea of the technology becoming more embedded and more intuitive and you having to interact with it less um, and, and all of these forms becoming more woven into the fabric of the home. Does, does everyone on the panel find that desirable? I, I, I mean, in some ways that sounds very nice, but there could potentially be issues within that, right? Uh, some people could say that is absolutely not what they want. They don't want their technology to become invisible, to become more integrated in the home in that way. How do you react to that debate? How how do you perceive that discussion? I think it's a matter of personal preference and the object itself. Like I have a lot of air purifiers in my home. So I live in California. We have, you know, wildfires. And that's an object that I like to be in the background. You know, I don't need to do a lot with that. Um, but I also have a massive TV and I love like watching TV. I want it to stand out. I don't mind. Um, you know, I like that there is a variety of different objects and, and configurations that devices can take on. I, I think it kind of, there's a time and a place, right? It depends on what the object is and its relation to the person. You know, some people are going to want a device to stand out more and some are going to want it to be subtle. And that's why we have you know, different companies, different SKUs, different options. Uh, I support it. <laughs> I think we should kind of play around it in a way. Like, for example, say my, I have a daughter who is four and a half now. And I remember like last year when we went holiday, we have this car, um, very smart. So even we, we say, hello, no, 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 like the branding, it says, um, yeah, what you, what you want. So to like try to respond to our, uh, voices and was quite fascinating and then my little daughter was like misunderstanding um there's a, some lady sitting inside of the car and she was keep calling my lady my lady like, it was much more kind of fun to play with her in a way her misunderstanding her mis kind of interpretation of the technology make us to be more bonded in that journey it was much fun so sort of I think there's something always uh, I feel a bit frustrated when I see people are fascinated about technology itself or new um, suggestion. As a designer, I think it's not maybe really bad thing. It's something if we u- if we use it like very smartly. Uh, I, I myself kind of thinking I'm human researcher, so I'm much more interested in human behaviors. So I think we have to much more centralize who we are, how we um, deal with the development. And um, then if it's okay, they can be smarter sometimes because they have a bun, bun, like 
tons of um, data they have we can against or fight against. But we're human beings. <laughs> we, we're much more, uh, we know how to trick more um, and cheat more, I think, than the technology. So I think we have to use that to remind us we're better somehow. Then it become much more fun to use that technology. That's how I think. Well, I think it's um, sort of like the holy grail indeed. You know, I think ever since Xerox Park and, and, and Mark Weiser sort of like has been sort of like to design a frictionless home. But I think, you know, personally, I think there's a case to, to be made to also add add friction in some cases um after all living is a verb um so i think it could be quite nice and, and provocative perhaps that that certain objects and devices you know cause a bit of friction um i don't know could it be perhaps interesting if to explore you know if if you know if you try to open the fridge after mid midnight <laughs> that it's it's more difficult to open because it sort of like tries to to encourage healthy uh, eating pa uh, patterns or um, you know, like, is it more difficult to turn on the heater when sort of like the energy prices are higher? Um, I think, I think, honestly, I think it's quite interesting actually to to explore these venues and 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 perhaps it it also makes sort of like using the the quote unquote smart home a bit more humane in that sense. Yeah, I think for me, it's like there's a real like as you said as well. There's a, a time and place for everything, and I feel like as much as tech can bring a lot of sort of convenience to like everyday tasks and things uh, I think it's also important that you're able to like step out of the way and let you well just live and experience like what you like to do like without technology being involved like, I think something as simple as like cooking for example it's really nice to just get your knife out cut vegetables that you just bought at the shop and maybe all of this you've just you know you're able to do it sort of from scratch and does technology needs to be heavily involved in this process? It could, and maybe it would, you know, maybe it would be really helpful for you if you have like difficulties cooking your food usually or making a schedule, but maybe you also just enjoy having that time for yourself and not being really disturbed whilst doing it. So I think there's there's a real like sort of spectrum of preferences there, but it's also about like allowing people to just cherish their habits and what they like to do themselves. I think one of the last points I wanted to get over is to return to a topic that was discussed earlier. And this is the role that design could potentially play in making us value these technologies more and hold on to them for a little bit longer, such that people come to respond to the specific design of the ambient tech um, so that it's something that they treasure and they like and they value. To, to what extent do you think that's possible? Because I suppose we do treasure a lot of objects, but they're they're often not technological ones. Um, I mean, clearly there are some exceptions to that. People absolutely love old audio equipment or televisions, whatever. Um, but at least with contemporary tech, I think we're very trained that there's going to be a new version coming out next year with additional functionality. So in a way, the business model almost encourages you not to become too attached to that particular manifestation of the device. How much do you think that stops people forming that kind of connection with this technology, that, that knowledge that more than likely there's going to be a new version right around the corner and in some ways that new version will be better and it will be more what you need? How do you overcome that? I mean, I think it, it goes back to the Harlem uh, piece, right? I think there's definitely an opportunity to perhaps introduce sort of like... Uh, like a, an inner core technology that sort of like runs the the that that is sort of like the the physical hardware device and that runs sort of like the latest uh, software and, and and those kind of things and perhaps sort of like the 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 shell like the the outer uh, appearance of the device that should just be re yeah, remain throughout its lifetime. So then then sort of like you know you can also sort of like hand it over from generation to generation and basically the inner works can just you know progress. Uh, as, as technology advances, perhaps that could be a potential intervention. And, and to add to that, maybe also just accept, you know, I mean, I think people still cherish their, their little brown uh, uh, clocks and, and radios uh, or their, their Bang & Olufsen speaker set or vinyl player. Maybe there's also something 
and that we need to, to learn more to cherish uh, vintage technologies. Yeah, I really agree with this. And I also, I feel like I can't help but think when we're having this conversation that as things are like progressing, when you listen to, um, when you just look at what the tech industry is doing, everyone is sort of like, yeah, more tech in the homes, like more products, more objects. But we're also facing like a real like dilemma and like how we use resources, like everything that's needed to build in like chips, resources needed to build uh, devices, whether it's like, at, at the moment at least, it's mainly like a lot of plastics, minerals, um, different types of metals. And so if we look 10 years in the future, we might have real problems like having to, you know, uh, extract these and use them to build all these devices. So I think there's a real case here in learning to cherish objects we already own and objects that will try to keep with us as long as possible because it might become much more difficult to just have this swarm of new objects coming in every year. I wonder if there's an issue around the way in which we communicate some of these technologies because designers, brands, and to be honest, especially the press, we can often seem quite fixated on things like the tech and nerdy features like the quality of LEDs in their TV when really the, the picture quality is already better than what we need and, and better than what we're going to use in any domestic setting anyway. Um, so there's less consideration perhaps of some other qualities in the design, like how will that TV sit in your home? Do you like that design? How long will it last for? Is it repairable? Is it friendly? Is it something I'd actually want to keep for my whole life? Um, I think there is an issue of where we focus our attention with tech. And hopefully conversations like this are a part of changing this um, because there's an opportunity to discuss those technologies and not treat them as fait accompli, right? I mean, we have options of what we want and there is agency in discussing what would be good in our home, what we want from our technology, uh, as important as what we want, also what don't we want. And so maybe that's a good point on which to end because I think that's hopefully an empowering message. Th these are live conversations. There's no need to take it as technology is marching inexorably in one direction. Uh, there's actually the opportunity to reflect on it and consider ways in which it might change going forward. So thank you very much to the panel for joining us today. And thank you also to you, the listener, for tuning in. We will see you on the next episode of Where Next with Matt Project Office. Thank you for listening to Where Next, a podcast made in collaboration with Matt Project Office. The series is hosted by Map, along with me, Ollie Stratford. It's produced by Evie Hall, with editing by Laura Chapman and mixed by Oscar Hjelm. To catch our next episode of Where Next, you can follow Map Project Office on Instagram at at mapprojecto. That's O for office. And you can also subscribe to the podcast by following Decenio Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from.